0: Father, I, I thank You so much for Your Word. I thank You for Your grace that You have given us birth, given us life in a day and an age that is an age of grace, that is a time of mercy. That we have opportunity, Father, and I, we certainly haven't earned this, we don't deserve this, but we have the opportunity at this point to learn from others to see through the eyes of of others' pain and heartache and hardship and learn the lessons that they learned the hard way. We truly live since the death and resurrection of Jesus in a time of of incredible mercy. But I pray, Father, that we would not miss this lesson any more than Israel did, that we would learn from it, that we would grow in our relationship with you because of it. Keep our hearts centered on You. Father, it is Your Spirit we desire. It's Your Spirit we want to know. It's the intimate fellowship, communion, and relationship with You that we want more than any any other. So I pray that You will remind us once again, teach us this morning, how to be there with You. We ask Your Spirit to be our teacher in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 8, Exodus 25 Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them according to all that I am going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture just so you shall construct it. They shall construct an ark of acacia wood two and a half cubits long one and a half cubits wide and one and a half cubits high that's approximately four by two by two. And you shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out. You shall overlay it and you shall make a gold molding around it. You shall cast four gold rings for it and fasten them on its four feet. And the two rings shall be on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark with them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be removed from it. You shall put into the ark the testimony, which I shall give you. That's going to be the Ten Commandments, the two tablets. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long, one and a half cubits wide. You shall make two cherubim of gold. Make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end, and one cherub at the other end. And you shall make the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat at its two ends. And the cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings and facing one another. The faces of the cherubim are to be turned toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on the top of Of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. Now he will go on. The Lord, through Exodus 25, 26, 27, all the way to Exodus 40, the Lord will give the architectural description and the actual construction of the tabernacle. That movable tent, the traveling temple, as it were, of the Jewish people before they arrived in the land, and even for quite a while after they were in the land, the tabernacle would be home to the place where God would meet the people. And within that tent was another tent, called the holy of holies or the, or the holy place within that tent was the holy of holies and the furniture of the ark of the, of the tabernacle including the ark of the covenant was, was spread out in there and the deepest and the holiest place was the ark itself and we're told that once Moses finished overseeing the building of the tabernacle and once he anointed it with oil as God had directed God moved his glory in skip over to Exodus chapter 40 verse 34 verse 34 Exodus 40.34 <clears throat> The very end of the book of Exodus tells us Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle That word glory when you see it is kabod in the Hebrew It literally means heavy weight The heaviness of God's glory The weight of His glory The full bearing of God's glory. It filled the tabernacle. And verse 35 says, Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day when it was taken up for throughout all their journeys the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and there was fire in it in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel an awesome reminder of God's constant presence with them If it was the middle of the day and you were having a rough day All you had to do was look in the direction of the tabernacle And there was that massive cloud And you knew God was there In the middle of the night you might wake with a nightmare All you had to do was look out the doorway of your tent And see that massive fire And know that God was there The Lord said I will be with you That was the whole purpose of the building of the tabernacle A place where my glory will dwell So the children of Israel will know I am there in their midst I am among them, I am close to them now when Israel finally came into and conquered the land of promise, they kept that tabernacle for a time in Shiloh. From Shiloh, eventually, apparently, it was moved to a place called Nob, the city of the priests. And we know that David ended up there and, and ate some of the showbreads. Another story we'll come up to pretty soon in 1 Samuel. From Nob, the tabernacle was moved up to Jerusalem, where ultimately it was replaced by the more permanent structure, the temple. Now when the temple was built, to be that, that new structure, same outline, same format as the tabernacle, just larger, more ornate. But when the temple was built, we're told in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10-22, through 22, the same thing happened that happened with the tabernacle. When the temple was finished, anointed, completed, the glory of God moved in. And so intense was that time when His glory filled the temple, the priests couldn't do their work. The cloud was too heavy. The kabod, the glory, the weight of God, filled it up. But it raises a question. Does God dwell in a house built by human hands? Isn't God bigger than that? Mm -hmm. Isaiah 66 verse 1 says, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? Acts chapter 17 verse 24 The God who made the world and all the things in it since he is the Lord of heaven and earth does not dwell in temples made with hands. So does God limit himself here to dwell in this house made by human hands or not? And the answer is not. It's not the Lord who dwells in the temple. It's not the Lord dwelling in the tabernacle. It is the glory of the Lord. You see, He's so awesome. Even His glory is more than we can handle. Even His glory is more than we could bear. Should God Himself enter into the tabernacle, we'd be done. Israel would be finished. The temple would cease to exist if God, in all of who He is, was entered into that place. It was His glory, the kabod, the weight of the Lord's glory entered in. For the Lord Himself is far bigger than... And I'll put it this way, he is bigger than we have yet realized. It's easy to say God is big. But he's bigger than, than we know. He's bigger than I understand. He is far greater than we realize in our limited human state. I, and there's a bumper sticker, maybe you've seen it on the back of cars driving around, that says, God is too big for any one religion. You know the indication of that. It's, it's, it's blanket tolerance. It's universalistic uh, concept that all religions, all roads lead to the same end. All rivers empty into the same ocean. It doesn't really matter. God's big enough to encompass all religions. I would agree with the phrase, he's too big for any one religion. But I would add to it on that same bumper sticker, which is why he invites us to relationship through his son, Jesus Christ. Big bumper sticker. <laughs> God is too big for any one religion, which is why He invites us into relationship through His Son, Jesus Christ. Religion has never been the issue with God. Reality is. Relationship is. Tradition is not the Lord's concern. Truth is. You and I bring even this morning our traditions. Those things that we were raised with, brought up with. Those things that we have held fast to. And what's interesting to me I've said this before The further into the word we go The more I see my personal traditions falling away The more the things that I thought were God The things that I assumed were truth The more they crumble in the reality of what truth is And so I'm left with a decision to make Either I decide I'm going to stand on truth Or I decide I'm going to cling to my traditions Let me tell you If you cling to your traditions You will never know God And if you stand on the truth, though there are times where it may be breathtaking, times where it may be a little unnerving, you will know the Father. You will know Jesus because Jesus said, I am the truth. I am truth, John 14, 6. And Jesus said in John 4, 23, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Remember, he's talking there to the Samaritan woman who's trying to figure out where to find God. Do we go to the mountain? I know you Jews go to Jerusalem. And Jesus says it's not going to be either place. It's no longer going to be the temple. You don't have to go to a place to find God. All you have to do is settle into the truth. God is spirit, Jesus said, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus is truth. Jesus is truth. The real problem we have today in understanding the size of God is that we limit the truth. We place human limitations on God the Father and therefore don't understand how vast and expansive He truly is. In limiting God to our own paradigm, our own worldviews, we can miss His grandeur, His greatness. And this is Israel's problem in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Limiting God. Let's, Let's go there now. 1 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 1. Thus the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Remember, Samuel is now the prophet. We're in a new age with Israel as we come into, not new age like the new age movement, but we're in a, a brand new time. A new system for Israel where God has left theocracy and he's going to move them into a monarchy, but he's going to continue to speak to them now through the prophets. The prophets instead of the priesthood. Now he's going to begin to use the prophets and Samuel is the first of these great prophets that will come along and we'll see many of them through our studies. But the word of Samuel came to all Israel. It's important, remember that. Now Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped beside Ebenezer while the Philistines camped in effect. And the Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. Pretty devastating. When the people of Israel came into the camp the elders of Israel said Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. So the people went to Shiloh, and from there they carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who sits above the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp all Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth resounded whoopee hallelujah the Ark's here right on this is great now we can fight now we can win when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout they said what does the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean and then they understood that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp the Philistines were afraid why were they afraid they're pagans They were afraid for they said God has come into the camp And they said woe to us Nothing like this has happened before Woe to us Who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods These are the gods who smote the Egyptians With all kinds of plagues in the wilderness Take courage and be men O Philistines Or you will become slaves to the Hebrews As they have been slaves to you Therefore be men And fight Which is always a stupid way to approach God But that's how they did They were pagans They were heathens Let's well, stand up. There may be gods in the other camp, but let's be men. Let's fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And every man fled to his tent, and the slaughter was very great. For there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas, died. Which, by the way, fulfills a prophecy that's given in chapter 2, verses, uh, verse 34. Where a prophet comes to Eli and says, This is the sign that God is against your house. Your two sons are going to die on the same day. Well, they did. What went wrong? Israel first loses 4,000. They go get the ark with the priests and they come back. They have a great time of worship together and then they lose 30,000. What's the problem with Israel? And we can put it very simply, they put God in the box. It's God in a box. We know where the power of God is. It's in Shiloh. That's where you go. Tucked away there in the tabernacle. That's what we need in the ark. Let's go get him. That's where we keep God. In that little box. Inside the traveling temple. That's where he is. So quick, dispatch someone, go to Shiloh, get him, bring him back. God in a box. We know how God works. Remember Jericho? We marched around the city, remember that? And, and we carried the box. God in the box. He must have been with us because the walls tumbled and so it must be the box. God in a box. Israel's limited experience limited their view of God and we can do the same thing. We can limit the power of God. We have, amazingly, as human beings, the power ourselves to limit the power of God. Mark chapter 6 verse 1 tells us Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath came he began to teach in the synagogue and the many listeners were astonished saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Is this not the carpenter? The son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And we're told, Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And Mark writes, and he could not do any miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. He couldn't do any miracles. Jesus was limited by their lack of faith. In fact, the story rounds out in verse 6 that he wondered or marveled at their unbelief. He couldn't. He literally could not perform the supernatural in the face of such faithlessness, such doubt, such unbelief. And he marveled at it. He he left there just saying, (laughs) I'm amazed that man can be so unbelieving. When we put God in a box, we limit His power in our lives. When we say, this is how He works, and this is the only way He works, When we say, this is what we need of God, we we miss His greatness and what He is truly capable of, which is far more than we could ever ask or imagine. I want you to think about now for a moment how Israel limited God. Three quick things to note. Number one, they limited the Word of God. They limited the Word. Back in chapter 3, verse 20, it says, All Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. They limited the word who showed up, who spoke to Samuel. The word now that was given to Samuel to give to all Israel. In fact, verse 1 goes on Thus the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped by Ebenezer, and the Philistines camped in effect, and the Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. They limited the word. All Israel knew that this guy Samuel was hearing the Lord. They know it. They recognize he is a prophet, he's legit. He's too legit. To quit. He is the prophet of the Lord. He's speaking. He gives his word. The chapter starts out that the word of Samuel came to Israel. And then they go out and they fight the Philistines. Now here's the problem. I don't believe the word of Samuel was for them to go fight the Philistines. I think the word of Samuel was what the word of so many judges was before him. Repent. Return to the Lord. Had they listened to the word that went out from Samuel, I'm personally convinced they would have understood something, and that is this. The Philistines were God's paddle. And they were about to get spanked. The Philistines were God's rod... Of discipline. And the Lord often did that. In fact, throughout the times of the Judges, we see God using the enemies of Israel to discipline his people. Judges chapter 2, verse 14 said, The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he gave them into the hands of the plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them, so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Judges 13 verse 1 tells us more specifically Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines forty years The Philistines were God's paddle to spank a disobedient people By the way side note The Philistines they were a European people a seafaring people whose origins archaeologists have shown were from the Isle of Crete across the Aegean Sea and then across obviously the Mediterranean Sea Their pagan god was a god named Dagon Who was appropriately half man half fish Why would he be half fish? Because they were seafaring people Because they were sailors by trade By practice And they sailed across and landed on the coast of Israel Where they settled right there on the coast In fact today what you know of as Gaza Was part of the territory Getzer to Gaza That whole region was the region taken by the Philistines When they landed in the promised land Contrary to popular disinformation, they are not the ancestors of the Arabic Palestinians today. They're just not. And that's a myth. By the way, I want to say something, because oftentimes we talk about Israel versus the Palestinians. And you know how firm I am in my own belief that Israel shouldn't give up one more inch of land. In fact, they've already given up far too much. They've already given up what is not theirs to give up. And we have seen incredible acts of terror from among the Palestinians. Hamas, down in Gaza right now, what many people are even calling Hamas, Hamasan because of how things are going there. But understand, and please note this, and I've, I've kind of gotten some of this from talking with Jonathan. He doesn't even know this. But the Palestinians need Jesus too. The Palestinians are a lost people. The Palestinians, many of them are ravaged and are living in horrible squalor and horrible situations. I don't believe it's Israel's fault. I believe it's the fault of the neighboring Arab nations who have forced their own people into the kind of squalor in which they live. That being said, it's real easy sometimes to draw up the battle lines and say, I am for Israel and I am against the Palestinians. Well, if a Palestinian can be saved for Jesus Christ, then it needs to happen. So... Understand where we're coming from here. Yes, we stand with Israel, but we also stand for the salvation of all people. But the Philistines, going back to them, who who have died off, David ultimately subdues them. We see a little bit more of their activity up through uh, King Ahaz, I believe, and then after that, nothing, and, and they disappear from the earth. They were a culture of people who died out completely. And no longer exist. But at that time, the Philistines were God's warning to a carnal people. With that in mind, what are your Philistines? What are your Philistines? What are the areas of attack in your life that we so often ascribe to the devil, but maybe God's paddle of discipline? Even bad things God will allow and or use bring about in our lives to discipline us toward righteousness. What are your Philistines? Galatians chapter 6 verse 7 says Do not be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Gary was talking about standing on truth. Being uncompromising in that. And how easy it is to compromise and and get off base. Hey, whatever you sow, you're going to reap. It's a spiritual truth. It is a principle of living where whether you believe in Jesus or not, what you sow, you will reap. It does come around. Paul says the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Think about this. 4,000 Israelites died in that first battle. I don't think that's a coincidental number. I don't think it just happened to be 4,000. Now you know that numbers are significant in the Bible. We go through and and numbers have different meanings to them, attached to them, used oftentimes to explain or express something. Like the number seven, which we've seen again and again means complete, fulfilled, satisfied. We've seen other numbers. Ten, the number of the law, as in the Ten Commandments. We've seen different numbers used in different ways. Well, the number four is significant as well. The number four is the number of the earth. The number of the earth makes sense. We have four seasons. We have four regions, north, south, east, west. In fact, the Bible refers to the four corners of the earth. Interesting to read the fourth clause in the Lord's Prayer is, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The fourth book of the Bible is the book of Numbers that details Israel's wanderings in the wilderness on the earth. The four Gospels speak of Jesus dwelling where? On the earth. Even the four horsemen in Revelation bringing about judgment on the earth, a Christ-rejecting and sinful world. The number four, and you can go ahead and do this in your own study, go through and just track track fours through the scripture and, and see what it's connected to, and you'll find the number four has a tendency to be related to the earth. Four is an earthly number. 4,000 Israelites were killed because this people who were called to be heavenly minded were carnal and earthly in their approach. They were not viewing God with the eyes of faith that he was calling them to. They were misunderstanding. And this is after the entire seven generations of the judges. Where time after time God tried to explain and give them the discipline and the teaching as to who he was. And in fact, if you look at verse 3, it says the people came into the camp and the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? They even know. They even recognize that the Lord is the one who is behind it. The Lord is the one who used the Philistines to discipline them some more. They get that, they see that, and yet they still don't heed His disciplinary word. They know He's doing it. But they still want to fight back. They still want to kick Paul told Timothy this would characterize mankind in the last days. Hearing the word, but not wanting to heed the word. Second Timothy 4.3 says the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10 says, They will not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. It's a mindset. It's a mentality of rebellion that says, I don't care what the truth is. I don't care if I know the Lord's trying to discipline. I'm fighting back. I'm not going to listen to the word of the Lord. They limited the word. They ignored the word of God's warning. Number two, the people of Israel limited the wonder of God. They limited the wonder of God. They said, Let us take for ourselves from Shiloh the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. And so the people sent to Shiloh and from there they carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts who sits above the cherubim, not in, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas who were uh, there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Who is the deliverer here? God or the box? They go to Shiloh to get the box. They even say, It will deliver us. Let's get the Ark of the Covenant. That will bring about our victory, our deliverance. Have you ever thought about just going to the Lord? They weren't getting it. They were still limiting who God was, who God is. They put God in the box saying, Let's get the Ark. It will save us. I'm going to come back to this in a minute. But number three... Number one, they limited the word of warning, the word of God. Number two, they limited the wonder of God. And number three, they limited the worship of God. Look at verse 5. As the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout, so that the earth resounded. What did they do? They broke out in revival. They had a massive time of worship, and cheering, and dancing, and singing so loud that the earth was resounding, shaking. The Philistines were going, What's going on, man? It freaked out the enemy. You ever been there? Ever been in one of those worship services where the music was just rocking and the people were dancing and the shout of enthusiasm filled the place and the emotions were raging and you just get caught up until you kind of stop and think for a moment wait a minute, who's this for? Who's the focus here? Is it us? Is it the thrill that we get? Israel's jumping and shouting to the point of shaking the hills, but God wasn't even there. They're having revival, but God wasn't even present. Be careful with emotionalism and with human charisma. Because it may just be that. Emotionalism and human charisma. It's why people will walk out of a church on a rock and roll Sunday and get to their cars and kind of go... What what happened? I don't really feel any different. I'm not any, any closer to the Lord now. It's why we'll crash and burn on Mondays because you know we come out of church on Sundays having having this great emotional thing. You watch it. You can have a spiritual experience at a U two concert. You can. I was watching Rattle and Hum this morning. I don't often do that on Sunday mornings. But VH1 classic. Channel 473 on your cable dial. I'm watching and I saw you 2 was on. I love YouTube. 2 So I'm watching while well, Rattling home, And it was really cool. And I'm listening to the song and still haven't found what I'm looking for. And they even went down to Harlem and on this, on this video, they're down in Harlem at a church there and they've got the gospel singing and I'm eating my cereal just going, this is great. This is great. That was nice. I mean, it was just, you can get excited. People raising up, you know, the little lights. Oh, I am so into the music. It doesn't even matter who's playing. God may not be there. If worship is not holy, Christ-centered, it's nothing more than human noise. It's why we're called to worship. It's why, by the way, we continue to worship so we can learn to be Christ-centered and not others-focused. And I love those who just sing out with terrible voices because that tells me they have no idea they're not even paying attention to anybody else hitting bad notes right and left but man their faces they're just praising God and those beside him who are going (laughs) need to learn a lesson (laughs) that we're not there for the person we're there for the Lord we are here to holy worship Christ and Christ alone John Corson said and I love this God does not care how high we jump He cares how straight we walk You see, while it may have looked like a revival was happening in Israel's camp, the box was empty. There would be no victory. Verses 6 through 9 tell us again that the Philistines were frightened. They were rattled by this. They saw what was going on. And even the pagan Philistines thought God was there. Which tells us something about the whole seeker-sensitive mentality, by the way. You can get a non-Christian person into a place and convince them God is there by the emotionality of the thing when God's not present at all. Which is why, to my mind, we're not called to be a seeker-sensitive church, but a savior-sensitive church who is focused on Jesus and not what anybody thinks coming in or out the door. Saved or not saved, by the way. We don't do what we do so that the saved people coming in are content and happy in what they're hearing. You didn't do my favorite song today, Rick. Well, I'm sorry. We really need a few more hymns. Well, okay. It's not about what we need or think. It's about being sensitive to our Savior Jesus Christ Who said true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth Now I want to go back to this limitation of the wonder of God To the idea of putting God in a box And think about this Because the box itself was a good thing The Ark of the Covenant As we've already read about in Exodus Was a beautiful thing But I need to ask you to consider this morning Though you look at who your Philistines may be the enemies, the attackers, and what God may be using for discipline, ask yourself this question, what is my Ark? What is my Ark of the Covenant? How do I put God in a box in the life of faith in which I am living? Back in verse 3 again, they said, Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. They say we lost because we didn't have God with us. They rightly say this. So they wrongly concluded we need to get the box and it will be our Savior. It will be our deliverance. What is your ark? What is it that you truly believe is going to bring about your deliverance? What do you believe you can grab hold of that is going to go before you in battle? Is it a favorite Bible study scheme? A way of approaching the scriptures? Is it a certain program that you're personally sold out on? Oh, we did this at my last church and it changed everybody's life. We've got to do it here. Is it having the right church business plan or sticking to the correct tradition or even being involved in the right church? Well, you can go to whatever churches you want, but my church is the right church. The box will deliver us from our enemies. The box is the key. The barn is the key to our salvation. It's the barn I wonder when we move off this property and onto another property, will anyone's faith fail because of it? Will we say, oh, we just can't meet God in a different building than that comfy, cozy, cool, and happening barn? Does anyone here really believe that the reason you came to Christ, if, if you did come to Christ here, or the reason you started tending the bridge was because of the barn? rather than the spirit of the God, of the holy God who called you, it's not the barn. It's the Lord. And whether we're here, or standing outside around the pond, or scrunched into the Gilmore's living room, or out on a different piece of property in a big ugly metal building because it's all we could afford, can God show up and do what He's going to do? Absolutely He can. What are our arcs? You might be saying, okay Rick, you're just preparing us to move. No, that's not my point. <laughs> Here's the thing, and listen closely, this was Israel's problem. This is God in a box in a nutshell. Yeah. When we replace the substance of the Lord with a symbol of the Lord, we just put God in a box. And the substance, who he truly is, is replaced by the symbol. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, Paul said, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The substance is Jesus. We replace the substance with the shadow Anytime we are more into spiritual trends than spirit-led trust. See the difference? I'm I'm trending after what's happening in the church today. The recent buzz, the the most immediate thing to come down the pike. That's what's going to save us. That's the new thing. That's that's what we all need. That's why I'm so skeptical about the newest thing that happens in the broader church. The newest study program. The newest plan. The newest idea that if your church will grab hold of this, you will grow and grow and grow. And when I hear these things, I just kind of go... I've heard that before and it's worked before in different generations in different churches in different places I'm skeptical of the most recent dribble to come from the mind of man this is why I get on my soapbox about Christian books hey they can be encouraging but don't forget they're still the mind of man trying to figure out the will of God you all can write your own Christian books some of you probably can make a lot of money It's still the mind of man trying to figure... The sermons that you hear on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night are still the mind of man trying to express the Word of God. Now hopefully, prayerfully, what you're hearing is not Rick's ideas but the Spirit speaking through His Word and and not what I'm trying to do. But I can still get in the way. Trust me, I have many times. We cannot box up spiritual life in a neat and tidy little package any Christian book titles that begin with five T's or seven steps or three principles man that just makes me leery (laughs) so what is your personal ark what shadows or symbols do you tend to draw to that replace the substance of the living God God cannot be packaged He can't be programmed He cannot be produced now remember the ark is a good thing It was a very good thing. But it could not lead to victory. Only He could bring about the victory. The ark was good. It was a shadowy representation of Jesus Christ. In fact, back when we studied Exodus, oh, it was breathtaking to look at the ark and its construction and everything that goes into it and see how it shows us Jesus. Made of acacia wood a picture of his humanity by the way the acacia wood that is thorny and very likely where the thorns came from that were shoved onto his head an acacia wood box covered on the inside and out completely with gold a picture of his deity holding inside of it the the commandments which Jesus alone was able to hold and internalize and keep I could go on and on about how the ark portrays for us, represents, symbolizes our Savior, but the ark is not our Savior. You know, I know where God dealt with me a little bit through the week on this is even the Bible itself can become, if we let it, an ark. It's a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. But Jesus said, and if you're into the Bible like I am, this will rattle you a bit. John chapter 5 verse 38 He's talking to the Philistines And he said You do not have his word abiding in you For you do not receive him whom he sent You search the scriptures Because you think that in them you have eternal life Hey, it's these that testify about me He says you're unwilling to come to me So that you may have life Because I'm standing right here And you're off doing Bible study And I'm right here Philistines you miss the fact that the, the, the words you're studying are all about pointing you to me so we can be in relationship. Does that mean we just close the Bible and stop studying? No. But it means we understand that every word of every page is to help us see Jesus better. To motivate us into life with Jesus. If people have said to me, I've studied the Bible and it just doesn't do it for me. Then you've missed the point. I tried to get close to the Lord. Every morning I have my 20-minute devotional time and I've been reading through the Scriptures day after day. I'm in somewhere in Isaiah and I don't have a clue what he's saying, but I'm trying to stick with it, you know? To get close to God. You're missing the reason behind it. Don't run to the formula. Run to the Father. Don't cling to the program. Cling to our high priest, Jesus Christ. Have you ever noticed the Bible just doesn't give us to-do lists? I can't find them. I've looked for them. Lord, if you could just give me three steps to happier living in one place, not all over the place, just one place. Show me in one book where you can go, okay, Rick, first you do this, then you do this, then you do that, and it'll be good. And I haven't been able to find it. We even put verse numbers on the saying so that it makes it a little easier for us so we can say, well, yeah, verses 3, 4, and 5, but, but there's a list right there. No, there's no list in the Bible. There was one called the Ten Commandments and it didn't work because we can't keep a list. We were really no good at it. The Ten Commandments were good but they were a shadow of the substance and not the substance. They were there as we read at the beginning Galatians 3 to point us to Jesus. To bring us to the Lord. Which is why Jesus said, I believe, in John chapter 3, verse 8, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from, and where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit, and that sounds so loosey-goosey, doesn't it? It's because God wants us to trust Him, and not rely on plans or programs or schemes to figure Him out. So many churches will have in the back A belief statement published So you can read it and go Okay, this is what this church is about We don't, why? Because you're going to have to come here To figure out what this church is about And if you don't want to, that's okay But the Lord says I want you to come to me And not in a week Not in a month Not in five or ten years But in a lifetime I want you to discover who I am Let's walk together Hey, yeah, but Lord, I need a list for this week. Let's just walk together. Yeah, but if you can just tell me what to do about this one thing, how about we just walk together? Leave the ark at Shiloh and come to me and talk to me. The Lord wants us again to be spirit led, spirit filled, spirit sensitive. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 says, Now we receive not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual spot, thoughts with spiritual words. But, Paul says, the natural man, the earthy man... The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. And by the way, carnality loves a good formula. The flesh loves a great program. Did you notice who was there in Shiloh and who readily came along with the Ark of the Covenant? It was Hophni and Phineas. Two of the most carnal priests in the history of Israel. And they were on board immediately. Oh, the ark to go to victory? Yeah, we'll be part of that. For one thing, it'll make us look good. And so off they go, supporting this whole ridiculous idea, these evil sons of Eli. And by the way, if you weren't with us, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 12-17 through 17, and verse 22 will detail their carnality. How lustful and sick these two priests were. But as priests... They should have known that the Ark was forbidden in battle, except in the case of the Spirit-led battle against Jericho, which was God's call. In every other case, the Ark was not to be taken into battle. In every other case, the priests were not supposed to go to war. They should have known these things, but the natural carnal man loves God in a box. Because there God is definable and workable and I can make Him do what I need Him to do when I need Him to do it. And when I don't, I can go back to my place in the Galilee and leave Him in Shiloh, nice and safe and secure for the next time I think I need Him. The flesh loves a good measurable formula, a great proven program. But 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, Paul goes on and says, But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. What's he saying? He's saying the spiritual person views life from a spiritual perspective. A spiritual perspective. That is about the Spirit of the Lord, knowing God, walking in relationship. The wind blows wherever it pleases. So it is with anyone who is born of the Spirit which means I don't know what I'm doing this week I have a basic idea but God may change that I don't know where I'm going to be in a month or a year but I'm going to keep praying I don't know when the Bridge Christian Fellowship is moving out of the barn and over to that property I don't know if we ever will Jesus may come before we get a chance to hallelujah great I don't know But he does. And the spiritual person appraises all things spiritually. Paul says, Who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And the mind of Christ is not small like my earthy mind. His mind is greater and bigger, again, than all I can ask and imagine. And so the question for us this morning is Is my faith limiting God's power? that's really where it comes back what do I believe God is capable of doing what am I willing to open my mind up to spiritually to allow the Lord to produce in my life are we boxing God in like Israel did whenever we put God in a box we end up defeated despairing, depressed life gets hard when we box God in and I believe the Lord will say you want to go that way this way is better but if you want to go that way you're going to end up defeated. The good news is, is when you're defeated I'll, I'll still be there. So I'm going to pick you up and I'm going to say why don't we go this way. He's a good God. Let me finish this out. Verse 11. It says the ark of God was taken and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas died. Now the man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And when he came, behold, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road eagerly watching because his heart was trembling for the ark of God. Not for his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Didn't even mention that he cares about his two boys. His heart was trembling for the ark of God, which is part of the problem in Eli's household. He placed his role and his religion over his family and they end up defeated. So the man came to tell in the city and all the city cried out. When Eli heard the noise of the outcry he said, What does the noise of this commotion mean? And then the man came hurriedly and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old. His eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am the one who came from the battle line. Indeed, I escaped from the battle line today. And he said, how did things go, my son? And then the one who brought the news replied, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has also been a great slaughter among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been taken. When he mentioned the ark of God, not Hophni and Phinehas, when he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell off the seat backward beside the gate and his neck was broken and he died for he was old and heavy. Thus he judged Israel 40 years. The news about his son's death didn't kill him. The loss of the ark killed him. Why? Because Eli trusted the ark. The ark's gone. And without the ark we have no hope. The Ark is our Savior, God in a box. God in a box. But watch this. Verse 19 says, When his daughter-in-law, Phineas' wife, she was was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the Ark of God was taken, and that her father-in-law and her husband had died, she kneeled down and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, she dies here giving birth about the time of her death the women who stood by her said to her do not be afraid for you have given birth to a son but she did not answer or pay attention and she called the boy Ichabod Kabod the glory awake the glory of God Ichabod saying the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God was taken. Then, because of the father-in-law, of her father-in-law and her husband, she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God was taken. And to me, the final tragedy of this story is far worse than even the first or the second one. It's that when the Israelites boxed God in and the box was taken, they believed the glory was gone. And they couldn't see Him. e kavod, glory gone. Was it? Was the glory actually gone because the box was taken? Is God so limited that as the Philistines go off with the ark, He's like, oh, oh, Israelites, help, save me! <laughs> or is the glory still where it always was? Still present as God was ever present. Listen, if your most recent formula fails, does that mean the Father is rendered impotent? Yeah, but we, we tried this whole scheme, this plan for the church, and it fell apart. God must not be with us anymore. If your ideal of life comes apart at the seams, does that mean that God's just not able to help you? If my methodology if methodology is proven wrong, is not Messiah still right? Isn't He still glorious? the truth is, when all is said and done, only one truth stands. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Not through the ark, not through the priest, not through any symbol or shadow, but only through the substance who is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we need this reminder to walk with you and not to look for plans or ideas or methods that so often serve to take our minds off of you. Father, I pray that you would teach us how to use the good things you've given us, the provision, even the ideas among us, how to use those things for your glory, but not to, Father, assume that they replace or contain or hold your glory. May we truly learn to be people of faith who spiritually appraise all things. In Jesus' name, Amen.